Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, if you're using a pew Bible, it is page 737, page 737 in the pew Bible, and we're looking forward to starting our new series here uh, in the book of Daniel. Just a heads up, men, next week is Mother's Day, so just a little forewarning there for you. Um, Looking forward to a few things. I think there's been a... uh, a grassroots operation, any ladies to wear hats uh, on Mother's Day. If you feel so led, feel free to do that. If you watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday and got some inspiration, you know. Uh, and then we're also looking forward to uh, some baby dedications next week as well. Uh, we have several uh, families who have little ones uh, from the last time we were able to do it, and so we're looking forward to doing that next Sunday as well. But if you found your way to Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 1, we're going to give the background and introduction here to the book of Daniel as we'll be spending most of the summer, more than likely into the fall, just a little bit in the book of Daniel, looking at uh, what Daniel has for us. So let's pray, and then we'll read our passage and jump in. Father, you are holy. You are three times holy. Holy, holy, holy. Lord, and as Isaiah looked upon you and realized his own sin, Lord, I pray that we would do the same. Lord, we are far worse than we understand. And you are far more perfect and lovely and altogether holy than we can even comprehend. But Lord, grow our understanding of who you are and your holiness. Show us our sin more and more. But may that not cause us to fret and to worry and despair, but rather come with humble adoration and joy and gratefulness to Christ to receive that love and mercy and grace that is found in Him alone, so that we can stand in Your presence, not because of any of our own merits, of any of our own strength, or any of our own works, but because of Christ. And all that He is, and all that He has done, and all that He will do, Lord, the fact that we are united with Him, that we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that You would help us now as we begin this journey through the book of Daniel. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us understanding. Lord, help us to be encouraged and challenged by the words of your prophet. Lord, how a book written almost 3,000 years ago can have an impact in our lives today. We thank you for the truth and the power of your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. If you found your way to Daniel, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the, of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. 
Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. That's why he called Abednego. <coughs> As we jump into the book of Daniel here, it's important to realize where we're at and what's happening. Our, our series is entitled Daniel, God's Plan Over Human Powers, which is the title of our message this morning. This is really, I believe, one of the main themes, if not the main theme through the book of Daniel. How God's plan conquers all human powers. How God's plan is sovereign over the rising and falling of nations. How God's plan is powerful over singular human rulers who have almost absolute power in their domain. God's plan over human powers. We see that in a great way in the end of Daniel from chapter 7 through 12. Daniel's uh, prophecies, his visions of the kingdoms and what's to come. This is the, the grand scale. This is the, the looking at the whole picture. But then in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, we see God's power, God's plan over human powers in small individual ways through Daniel and through his friends and through the kings of Babylon and the kings of the, the Medes and the Persians. We're going to see these themes reflected through our uh, study here in the book of Daniel. How many of you like to have a plan? You're planners. And you have your plan, and Lord forgive any person who tries to get you to deviate from that plan, right? <laughs> and some of us have, have very intricate plans. Some of us have plans like, I'm going to do this today, maybe sometime if I get around to it, if not tomorrow, right? Some of your plans is that you have no plan, and that's your plan, right? Um, you, for the lack of a better term, fly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> Whatever happens, happens. Some of us like to control while others, others are free to, to roll with it. But I think generally, most of us like to have an idea of what's going to happen, of how things are going to work out, or, or things you want to accomplish, and we see this reflected through how we start our days, how you schedule your week. Some of you have to have a, a detailed schedule. Some of you have maybe a post-it note. That's me. I, I have my what I want to get done this week, but every day I walk in and I, I take a post-it note and say, okay, what are the five things I need to get done today? And I start with usually the easiest and try to get a few knocked off my list to, to get going. We like to have control, to have a strategy, to, to have a plan for how we approach something. This plays into being disciplined and being ready for the day, which is a good thing. But this can also tread into the water of pride and saying, no, it has to be my way. It has to go my way because I want control. I want the power. I want the ability to get what I want accomplished. And it, and it can can start to veer and, and, and bleed into the realm of pride and selfishness. When we read the book of Daniel, we're going to read of some kings that want things their way. <laughs> and it's a very proud, my way. I'm the king. But God is going to humble them. And through Daniel and through his interaction with his friends and through these visions, we're going to realize how God ultimately is the one who has a plan that's going to work itself out. And we see this even here in the beginning of the book of Daniel, in these first seven verses. Our big idea for this passage is this. The exile of Daniel and his friends shows God's power over human plans 
by placing these faithful servants in a position that he will use to great effect in the future. Now, that's pretty wordy. <laughs> Let me say it again. The exile of Daniel and his friends shows God's power over human plans by placing these faithful servants in a position that he will use to great effect in the future. Throughout the book of Daniel, we're going to see God's sovereign hand working and using these pagan rulers to put people and things in place to accomplish his plan. And we see that here in the beginning. Before we jump into this, just some background of of the book of Daniel uh, to get you acquainted with it. Uh, Daniel was written by Daniel. There's some scholarly, some text criticism that, well, could be this, could be this person. Tradition, the, the, the Jewish tradition and the tradition of Orthodox conservative Christian scholars is that Daniel wrote these, uh, these prophecies, wrote this account. Uh, Ezra, the scribe, may have uh, combined some of them and organized them, but Daniel is the main author. Daniel was exiled around 605 uh, BC, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, to Babylon. Daniel comes from the tribe of Judah. He's a a kingly uh, ancestry. He's from uh, the nobility. He's from the tribe of Judah. Daniel's name means God is my judge. And I think that's interesting because Daniel is going to be in front of a lot of people who have a lot of power who are going to pass a lot of judgment on him. But ultimately, who is the one who's going to judge Daniel? His God. So God is my judge. It's the name of Daniel. Daniel is mentioned in Ezekiel 14 and 28. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, more than likely, was a contemporary, many believe, of Daniel. And so he's referenced by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14 and 28. The prophecies of Daniel are also mentioned by Jesus. Daniel's mentioned by name in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. This is the the Olivet Discourse, when they're looking back on the temple and Jesus says, you know, this is going to be torn down and, and all these things are going to happen. Jesus quotes Daniel saying, Daniel wrote these things. So Jesus believed that Daniel wrote these prophecies. There are some unique things about the book of Daniel. Uh, there are three languages that God used through human authors to write the Bible. We're familiar with Greek, the New Testament, The vast majority of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But then there's one section in the language of Aramaic. And that is found here in the book of Daniel. And it's split what language Daniel uses. And there's reason for that. Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is written in Hebrew. Most people believe that it was written in Hebrew because Daniel's prophecy, his foretelling, his visions were to encourage the Jews. The Jews' main language at this point in time was Hebrew. And so Daniel recorded these parts of his writings in Hebrew. But chapters 2 through 6 are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common tongue of the day. It was the, the language uh, that was used uh, for trade, for people who came from different parts. It was the, the common language. And so it was used by not only the Jews, but also the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians. It would be well known by everybody. Most 
uh, people believe or think that Daniel wrote chapters 2 through 6 in Aramaic because he's recording his interaction with these pagan kings. And a big part of that was the fact that they either responded to the Lord in his work or they didn't. And it would be a warning to anybody who would read these accounts, these court tales, uh, as they were called. Um, So Hebrew and Aramaic. And really, you can almost divide the book in that sense. You have the first six chapters and then the last uh, six chapters as well. So written in two languages. There are two types of writing here uh, in Daniel. There is a narrative stories, court tales, uh, accounts that happen before kings. That's, that's chapters one through six. So Fiery Furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall. Uh, here, Daniel and his friends not eating the food. These are all narrative stories, recording uh, interaction and communication between different people. Chapter 7 through 12 is a type of prophecy called apocalyptic. Now, you probably hear that word and you think of the word apocalypse, which is where we get that word from. There are two uh, books in the Bible that use apocalyptic writing. First one is Revelation apocalyptic, and then the second half here of Daniel is apocalyptic. It's a type of prophecy, so it shares a lot of the similarities, but it's different in that it's filled with mainly visions and crazy imagery. That's my technical term, crazy imagery (laughs) of animals, of beasts, of rising and falling of nations, this extreme imagery that is hard to understand, but yet God is using it to paint a picture for us in regards to the future. So we'll talk more about that when we get to the end of, of Daniel, those, those six chapters. Most of you are probably familiar with Daniel 1 through 6, right? Growing up, being involved in Sunday school, how many of you remember the flannel graph for Daniel in the lion's den, right? <laughs> or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there's, there's the fourth person with them in the fiery furnace. My favorite part was then when King Nebuchadnezzar's servants, they fell into the fire. That was always fun to reenact, and they were the ones burned up. You know, as like a six-year-old boy, that was awesome. Um, or the handwriting on the wall. The, uh, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar made of pure gold. Uh, we're familiar with these accounts. But Daniel 7 through 12, though we might have an idea, it's a little bit harder to understand. Uh, and because of that, Daniel is either ignored or... People seek to understand Daniel almost in a mystical, hidden meaning sense. And they become obsessed with it to where it becomes out of balance with the rest of their understanding of the Bible. And so what we're going to try to do as we make our way through Daniel is view it with a right balance, seeking to understand those hard things and what it means for us going forward to the future, but also keeping the grand scheme of God's plan in mind. Some of the main themes of Daniel include God's sovereign power and his kingship over the entire world, uh, the faithfulness of God's servants in pagan cultures, God's plan for the future, and how followers of God should conduct themselves in the face of a sinful culture. But I think all those things nestle underneath this main theme of the book of Daniel, which we already mentioned, is God's plan over human powers. So let's look here how these first seven verses reflect God's plan being worked out through human powers, uh, even in spite of the exile here. So the first thing we're going to look at as we look here in this first seven verses, that God's plan is executed 
through the conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. The conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we jump right in, and Daniel records for us with a timestamp when this happens. And he says, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now understand, Jehoiakim is king of Judah. At this point in time, the northern tribes of Israel have already been exiled by Assyria. God protected Judah and King Hezekiah from the Assyrians, right? One night, all of a sudden they woke up dead. Boom, the angel of the Lord took care of that problem. But yet, the sin of Judah continued. And though Hezekiah's life was extended, and though there was a time that they themselves continued to exist as a nation, their sin increased and increased. And at this point in time, Jehoiakim has made an agreement with Pharaoh of Egypt, and they are a vassal of Egypt. They are paying tribute to Egypt. So they are in league with a pagan nation looking for protection. And it's just Judah. And if you ever realize this, this is where we get the term Jew. Uh, We say Israelites, you know, from the nation of Israel. But really, this is just the tribe of Judah. And it's where we get the term Jew or Jewish from, from the tribe of Judah. So here they are. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. This is put around 605 BC. And Jehoiakim is king. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Now there are some circumstances with Nebuchadnezzar and his father dying and Nebuchadnezzar rising to the throne. But Nebuchadnezzar was perhaps one of the most efficient, popular, uh, most educated, uh, one of, for lack of a better term, best rulers uh, in the ancient Near East. The way that he expanded his empire, the way that he treated his empire, from a worldly perspective, he was a very good king. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were fighting against Egypt. There's a battle that's recorded in the histories called the Battle of Carchemish uh, that happened at this time. That's when Babylon defeated Egypt. And in doing so, Nebuchadnezzar came along to Jerusalem. It's right there, that same area. Judah being a vassal of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. And look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I want you to see there, that first part of verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. This phrase is going to be used a few more times here in chapter 1. But the idea of the Lord giving. Daniel's making a point here that it's the Lord, through his sovereign plan, who's giving Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave Jerusalem, Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now granted, Nebuchadnezzar was a wise and powerful king, and from an earthly perspective, he's the one who did it. But as we take a step back and look at the circumstances, ultimately it's the Lord using Babylon to bring judgment on Judah. Now, if you go in your memory banks, because I know you remember every single message you've ever heard and that I've ever preached, right? We walk through the book of Habakkuk very briefly. Habakkuk, 
one of those favorite prophets that we read all the time. Habakkuk is crying out about the sin in Judah. And what does God say? I see the sin. I'm going to judge it. Okay, great. How are you going to judge it? And what does God say? I'm going to use Babylon. And Habakkuk's like, what? You're going to use a more pagan, sinful nation to judge your own nation because of their sin? Yes. This is foretold in the prophet Habakkuk that Babylon was going to come and conquer Judah because of their sin as discipline, as, as punishment for their sin. And the Lord does this through Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And along with him, some of the vessels of the house of God. We read some. These are the instruments used in the temple for worship. These were to be set apart. These were to be ceremonially clean. So removing them from the temple. Of course, a pagan using them, an idolater using them would make them unclean. But some of them are removed <coughs> and taken and defiled and placed into the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. In Nebuchadnezzar's temples that he has. So here we see these special sacred things being defiled. God's judgment and wrath is being poured out on the nation this way. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, verse 2. Shinar is another name for Babylon. And we're going to read the name Chaldeans. That's also another name for Babylon. So you got Babylon, you got Shinar, you got the Chaldeans, all talking about the same area of modern-day Iraq. Um, but Shinar is an interesting word. What do you know about the plains of Shinar from your Bible memory? Did anything bad happen in the plains of Shinar? Was there ever a building project in the plains of Shinar? Perhaps one that was going up and up and up and up, but yet God had to come down to look at it? This is the same location where the Tower of Babel was built, right? And this is the same location when those giants of Nimrod, which is a great name, Nimrod, these great mighty hunters, these, these, these pagan, before even Noah, had powerful um, uh, lands, was in the plains of Shinar. So you have these, these wicked people living in this area. You have the, the Tower of Babel that was built and, and God judging them by splitting up the languages. And now we have Nebuchadnezzar and this, this wicked nation here in this area. We're going to see this contrast between Judah and Jerusalem and the promised land as demonstrating God's righteousness and holiness and all that is good. And then you have the plains of Shinar, which is, in a sense, the location of wickedness and unrighteousness. The people are being taken from the promised land to this place of wickedness where God's enemies dwell. The vessels from the temple are taken from where they should be, places of honor and worship, to pagan temples. We see this movement from righteousness to unrighteousness, from good to evil. This exile from the promised land to a wicked nation. He takes the vessels and puts them in the house of his God, and places the vessels in the treasury of his God. The conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar is brought about by God's hand, but it's a result of Judah's sin. It's important to 
understand why this is happening. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Moses is giving his last sermon. And then he's going to go up to the mountain and he's going to die. The joke is, pastor, when are you going to preach your Deuteronomy sermon? Right? (laughs) What does Moses say? Moses says, if you serve God, there will be blessings. If you disobey God, there will be cursings. Why? Because God has delivered the people. He has made them his chosen nation. And he says, I have made this covenant with you, the old covenant, the law of Moses. If you humble yourselves and follow me according to my law, there will be blessing. If you do not, there will be cursings. That's the end of Deuteronomy. But we see this, how there is wickedness and sin. They do not listen. They continue to partake in idolatry again and again. We read in Isaiah 39 verse 6 of the prophecy of Isaiah that the Lord is going to come and he's going to take them into exile because of their sin with Babylon. Isaiah 39 verse 6. Jeremiah 20 verse 5 is another passage where Jeremiah prophesies how the vessels of the temple are going to be taken in exile because of the sin of Judah. Why is all this important to realize? Daniel and his friends and the nation are in the position that they are in because of their sin. As a nation, the rebelling against God, the idolatry, and God is pouring his wrath out on them, his judgment, because they are being disobedient. God judges sin. But it's important to remind ourselves that though they are taken into exile because of their sin, God doesn't wholly give them over. He doesn't forsake them. And that's really where the book is leading, is that, yes, they've sinned and judgment is being poured out, they're being disciplined, but God is going to bring them back. And he's going to have the ultimate victory. The judgment is seen in the destruction, in taking of people and halting of the temple worship. We need to realize here that the Lord God is completely sovereign and he's going to do exactly as he wishes that he will pour out judgment on sin. He will hold his people accountable and he disciplines them according to his wise judgment. I think this is important for us to remember today. God disciplines those whom he loves. The nation of Israel was his chosen nation, his people. He loved them. He drew them out of Egypt. And he has made a covenant with them. He is disciplining them because he loves them. And I think this is important for us because as we think of this in the New Testament, you think, well, if I sin, am I going to be exiled somewhere? (laughs) As a believer in Jesus Christ, we understand that all of our sins are paid for. So we are not judged in that sense, abandoned, punished for our sins. But as a child of God, because we are his children as believers, we are disciplined. Hebrews 12 talks about this, that like any good earthly father, they discipline their children so they will learn for their own good. And as God is disciplining the nation, for us today, we are disciplined because we are loved by God. One author said this, this may bring pain in the immediate future, yet the purpose is not to simply punish for the sake 
of making one suffer. Rather, God, as a perfect loving father, always designs discipline with a purpose. He always acts out of love, and whenever he disciplines us, it's for our own good that we might derive some benefit from us from it. God, through the conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, is judging the sin of the people, but he has a plan through it. It's a good reminder for us today. So not only does through, Jude, through uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Judah is conquered, the choice young men are taken into exile. That's our second half here. The choice young men are exiled. Verse three, then the king commanded, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch or chief governor, uh, magistrate, somebody who was under him, to bring some of the people of Israel. So the entire nation isn't being taken into exile. That will happen in 586 BC when everything is laid to waste. This is before that, around 605 BC. So some of the people are being taken, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So this is a tactic that nations would use. They would take the powerful people, the people in charge, out of the nation because then those leaders that were there the regular everyday person would have no one to look to, right? Who's going to lead the rebellion against this king if the nobles and the leaders are all gone? So they take these people, and we read here that they're specifically young individuals, youths, without blemish. That means without deformity. They're young. They're healthy. They are of good appearance, good looking. (laughs) They commend themselves well. And they're skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So these are young men from the royal line who are healthy, who are not deformed or have any handicaps. They are good-looking. They are smart. They are wise. They are able to learn. Like, this is the who's who of the up-and-coming in Judah. And that's who Nebuchadnezzar wants. And it makes sense. Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them, and then we're going to read here how he's going to teach them everything about the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He's going to indoctrinate them with the culture of Babylon. He's going to take the young men who are impressionable and smart and good-looking, and he's going to raise them to be Babylonians. In doing so, he's got good people working under him, but he also has a bridge to help control the people that he's conquered. Because they know the background of Judah. They have a relationship with Judah. And so they know how to to fill that gap. It's it's very wise from an earthly perspective. That if they want to maintain rule over Judah, that they take some of those young men, train them, in a sense brainwash them, indoctrinate them, so that they can then go on to rule in favor of Babylon over Judah. And this is what they do. They carry them away, and they're given good food, kingly food. Food from the king's table and wine that he drank. This is, you know, this is the best food. The NBA playoffs are going on, and um, if you don't care about NBA, that's fine, but uh, LeBron James is playing. LeBron James is almost 40 years old, and he's playing at a very high level. And Carrie and I were talking about that, how old he is and that he's still playing professional basketball at a very high level. And I read somewhere that he invests over a million dollars a year in caring for his body. 
through diet, through therapy, all these different things. Over a million dollars a year just to take care of his body. As I ate another piece of pie last night, right? (laughs) Taking care of his body so that he can be the best that he can be. These young men are getting the best to get them strong, make them healthy so that they can be fit to learn and to serve. From an earthly perspective, they're giving everything they need to succeed. And why? Because Nebuchadnezzar wants to use them for his own selfish purpose. But we see what God is doing here. Though Daniel doesn't necessarily explain it right here, he is taking these young men, God is, and from the royal line, from Judah, and he's placing them in the court of the king. You want to have influence? You need to be close to the king. You want to have influence? You need to be wise and trained and understand. God is sovereignly placing these choice young men in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see how God uses them over the next several chapters to do amazing things for him. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I'm getting the best of the best to serve me. And God's saying, yeah, you keep thinking that, but I'm placing these people here to work out my plan over you as a human power. God has given Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar because of the sin of the nation. And in that, these young men are taken into exile. They're gonna be used by God, but they will be confronted with all sort of pagan idolatry. And one of the main things that we're gonna look and learn here over these first few chapters is how do you interact with a pagan culture? Because you look around our country and it's a pagan culture. (laughs) So how can we wisely interact in a way that reflects our faith in God, but does so in a way that we can commend him to those around us? That we can encourage others to listen to who our God is and what he's about. You think Daniel and his followers or his friends do that in a great way. The struggle of Daniel and the young men against the people will be one of the main themes, as I mentioned. Will they be faithful to God when the culture and everything around them is set against him? For us, how do we remain faithful in a world that is set against God? We'll see this unfold here in the next few chapters. But here are these young men now in the court of the king taken And their names, their identities are stripped from them. It's a a great reprogramming program, right? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah become Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names all have references to God. Their new names are all cheap imitations of their names for the pagan gods. Uh, some of your Bibles might have the footnotes of what those names, those names mean, but really they, they take their Jewish names and they paganize them. But yet, through that, uh, we still see how God is at work. So here are these young men in a difficult situation, but they are placed there through God's sovereign hand. It wasn't their choice, but yet these young men, 14, 15 years old, are now far from home, <coughs> far from all that they've known, in a world that is telling them to believe opposite of what they know to be true. But yet God is at work. I love what one author, as he paints this picture for us as we close out the setting here of the book of Daniel. 
He says this, Daniel had not chosen to be here. He was only the victim of circumstances, powerless in himself to change what was happening. From this point on, his life would never be the same. He was forced to leave behind his parents and family, his beloved Jerusalem, and the Hebrew culture with its focus upon the worship of Yahweh at the beautiful temple of Solomon. These things he would never see again. For the rest of his life, he would be a resident of Babylon, probably only a young man of 15 years at the time when he was taken. He now faced the daunting challenge of remaining faithful and true to the God of the Bible while living. Excuse me, while living in the midst of an idolatrous and pagan civilization. This is the setting of the book of Daniel. But yet, God has a plan and a purpose in putting Daniel in this location to accomplish his will. And we're going to see that played out. So, as we approach the book of Daniel, we realize that God's plan over human powers will, will win out. And Nebuchadnezzar, by God's sovereign hand, has been given. Jerusalem, given Judah, he's taken these young men, yet God is sovereignly at work in the background, going to bring glory to himself and work out his plan for the future. Father, thank you, even just for this introduction, Lord, just uh, uh, setting the stage for how you work, or how was your sovereign plan to put Daniel in this position, and Lord, you have sovereignly placed us where we are at. And Lord, we need not question whether this is right or wrong, but understand how should we live the time in which we are alive. Lord, may we rest in you, look to you, as we'll learn over the next several weeks how Daniel and his friends trusted in you and waited on you to work. Lord, I pray that you would help us do the same. Lord, as we transition now to the table, as we think of your sovereignty through Daniel, we think of your sovereign sacrifice of your son. Lord, your grace and mercy that's displayed there, that though we are far from you in exile in our sin, we are brought near, we are redeemed through Jesus. Lord, help us now as we reflect on this. We pray in your son's name, amen. That's the men who are here to help serve this morning. If you would make your way to the front.